Okay. Now we're going to switch gears uh, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter, and so get your, like, strong legs ready, because we're going to stand and read the whole chapter together. It's going to take us, like, 11 minutes. Uh, It won't take that long. It won't take that long, but we're going to stand and read the Word of God. And if you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words at the end of the main text reading to distinguish God's Word from my own. Um, So here's what Romans chapter 4 says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What say, or we say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would bear be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the offspring." Not to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I made you father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. So he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word, it was counted to him We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You can be seated. Aren't you glad you're sitting down? Mm. Good luck, parents and grandparents, on 
defining circumcision for your kids and grandkids because it only says it here like 11 or 12 or 13 times. <clears throat> and we're going to talk a little bit about it. So here's the thing. There are, uh, Paul is beginning to sound like a broken record. Does anybody, does anybody hear that? So what he's repeating over and over and over again in this letter is that you are justified by faith. You are justified by faith. Now, remember, this is a letter to be read from start to finish. This is uh, like another portion of his argument that he started several chapters ago about being justified by faith as opposed to being justified by works. And, and in this point that he's making, God's justification comes by faith for all people, this doctrinal argument that he's making, he gives two examples. One of them is Abraham. The other one is David. Now, Abraham, and I'll back up and say this. Remember, this letter is being received by the church at Rome, and that church is made up of Gentiles, people from all nations, and Jews who have become followers of Jesus. And their commonality is Jesus, but they don't have much else in common, okay? So they're, it's kind of a new day, and they're figuring this out. And so Paul is, is writing here mostly to that Jewish audience. And so he uses Abraham because Abraham is viewed in that context by the Jews as being very righteous because of his works. They look at him as the one who worked righteously, and it paid off, he became the father of many nations. They, they say, like in Genesis 12, God said to this righteous man, leave your, your father and mother, leave your homeland and go to a place I will show you. And Abraham did. That was, that was righteous work on Abraham's part. So there's this belief in the Jewish mindset that Abraham is very righteous. The Jews of Jesus' day viewed Abraham as the primary primary example of justification by works. Paul is arguing here, if Abraham is justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, but he has nothing to boast about before God. So that would have rattled the Jewish listener. Like you're talking about our father, Abraham, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of many nations, the father of our faith. You're saying is nothing to boast about. And Paul says, remember what he said, remember what the scripture says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he quotes it here in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So he makes this point, the one who works get the wages he deserves, right? So if you go to work you clock in, you get paid for the amount of hours you, you were clocked in for. The one who works gets the wages that they deserve. But justification doesn't work that way in the spiritual realm, according to Paul. God deems people to be righteous, not because they work to earn his favor, but because they simply trust God to make them righteous. It's a very different mindset. Righteousness is not earned. It comes as a gift. Now, Genesis 15. If we had two hours, I would like to preach Genesis 15 and then come back to Romans chapter 4 here, but we do not have two hours. And so let me tell you about Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. 
In Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, we get a very interesting picture. Um, All the way back in Genesis 15, God has said to Abraham, uh, here's the the promise I'm going to make to you. You're going to be a father of many nations and multitudes, more more than you can count the stars in the sky. These will will be your sons and, and your daughters, right? And so he cuts covenant with Abraham. And the way that works in the East is that you take animals, largest to small, you cut them nose to tail, you open them up and you put them on a slope and you let the blood run through the center, this path. And so when you're cutting covenant, it's between a greater party, God, and the lesser party, Abraham. The greater party sets the terms of the covenant. Then the lesser party passes through first, let it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if I don't keep my end of the covenant. And then the greater party passes through. I set the terms and all that, but let it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if I don't keep my end of the covenant. Now, here's what we get in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. This is the, the, the culmination of the cutting of the covenant. You can go back and read it uh, later if you'd like, all of chapter 15. But verse 17, it said, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That's maybe confusing. Um, Maybe you've read it and never thought about it. Smoking fire pot, flaming torch, you know. Uh, Here's some things we know. We know Abraham, Abraham, he never passed through. He never walked through. We only get a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And what we know in the context of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, smoking fire pot, that smoke is a type, a picture of God himself. The fire, the flaming torch, that is a picture of God himself. And so what happens in Genesis 15, while Abraham doesn't pass through, God passes through for the lesser party as well and says, let it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if you, Abraham, can't keep your end of the covenant. So all the way back in Genesis 15, I'm going to say we have gospel. We have gospel because this is fulfilled in the gospels when we see Jesus crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. That's where that fulfillment took place. But in Genesis 15, God knew Abraham, he can't keep his end of the covenant. He's never going to be able to work his way there. And that's Paul's point. Even Abraham couldn't work his way into right relationship with God. It comes by faith. Justification comes by faith. He throws another name out that all these Jewish guys know, David, King David, the shepherd David, who became king of Goliath fame, was not only known for his courage, he was known for his disobedience. You know him for his disobedience, probably. It's been Thousands of years ago now, and this guy, we're still talking about his disobedience. He was known for his uh, disobedience, his unrighteousness. What happened? Well, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was the king at the time. He was the authority at the time. He took advantage of her, and then he killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Everybody knows this. And so now he upholds David and if Abraham is, is like to the Jewish mind, someone who uh, should be justified by their works, of course, David would not be someone who would be justified by their works. I mean, even God, as much as he was a man after God's own heart, did not let him build the temple. Uh, 
because his hands were too bloody, okay? There's just, they, knew, they know this about David, and Paul quotes David right here in Romans chapter 4 from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, is blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, this is David writing, and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In other words, David connected with God in a way to understand, like, I am a sinful man. He's the one that wrote in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I am a sinful man. And it's because of his faith, not his works, his faith that God forgave him of those sins, even elevated him to king, even said, your throne will never end and the Messiah will come. From your line, okay? So Paul is just making to this Jewish audience this very clear doctrinal point that even Abraham, even David, justified by faith, justified by faith. Now, Romans 4, 9 to 12 talks about two different kinds of people. In that church, there were two different kinds of men that were circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. So all the Jewish guys in that, that church, on the eighth day of their life, they were circumcised as a sign of the covenant with God. They're, they're a son of Abraham, and it's obvious. All the Gentiles were not. They didn't think about that. They didn't want to think about that. They didn't care about that. And there's this argument going on. Sometimes the scripture calls this group uh, Judaizers. They're saying to the Gentiles who seem to have come to Jesus so freely that at least you need to be circumcised. And they're saying, Jesus is enough, man, because they don't want to be. They're free in Christ. Like, hallelujah, you should, should have come our way. It was easier, you know? <clears throat> That's the argument. And so Paul is just making this entire argument. He says circumcision and uncircumcision, circumcision, uncircumcision. It's more about the Jews who have the sign of the covenant and the Gentiles who do not have a sign of the covenant. And Abraham is the father of all of them, and they are all justified by faith through Christ. Now, we have a symbol. It's like that. It's perfect that we have this here today. Baptism. People get confused about baptism. They think, sometimes people think baptism saves me. I, I might ask you a question like, hey, hey, tell me uh, that time in your life, you know, where you've decided to follow Jesus. Like, you, you, you realize, like, I'm a sinner and I need to repent and confess and and come to him because he's the only one that can rescue me and justify me and all that. And they, they, they might answer the question by saying, I got baptized when I was eight, whatever. Well, it's not the baptism that saves you. The baptism is a sign like circumcision is a sign. It's, it's, it's a sign of what's already happened inwardly with your faith, with your trust. Same thing with circumcision, Paul is saying, is like, it's not about this or that. It's about what happens in, in here. The theologian F.F. Bruce, he wrote, God who alone does great wonders. He created the universe from nothing. He calls the dead to life, and he justifies the ungodly 
the greatest of all his wonders. So this theologian is saying, hey, every, every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when an ungodly person trusts God enough for his justification, that is the greatest miracle God ever did. Better than creating the world, better than bringing dead things to life. He, he, he saved you. That's an interesting, interesting point. And Paul concludes here that there's only one way to be justified, and that is the way of faith, right? So he's saying it again, and so I'm saying it again. You are justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that and as good as that and yet hard for us sometimes to believe. Now, there is a second major section of this, this Romans chapter 4, and I would just call this, uh, I make this observation that God, God's promises are realized also through faith. God's promises are realized also through faith. So his promises, they flow from his character and his nature, from him loving and wanting the best for his creation. And because they flow from his character and his nature, he is sure to fulfill his promises. He does not break promises. Now, Paul used the illustration of Abraham again, and so we will use this same illustration. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, it says to Abraham, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Right? This is the promise. We've talked about it. This is the promise. Now, if you're Abraham receiving that promise and you're 100 years old and your wife can't have kids, she's barren, you're thinking, that's impossible. First of all, I'm 100. I've never been 100, but those of you are getting close, you tell me. Like, does that seem... <laughs> The impossible. I don't know. But then secondly, his wife is barren. She's like known barren. She knows this. And so he's like, there, you got to be thinking there's, there's no way. You, you would think, you know, that's not possible. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence Things that do not exist. In other words, Abram, Abraham, he trusted God for the impossible because God is the one who said it. He trusted God for the impossible because God is the one who said it. Now, look, God is working. Maybe Abraham doesn't understand this in that moment, but God is working his redemptive and restorative purposes in the world through Abraham in this moment. This is why he will do it. Not just that he wants to bless Abram, but he's working a grander plan, a bigger picture based on his character and nature. And he will do it. Did you know that you and I can trust God too? When it comes to God restoring, when it comes to God redoing, doing the redemptive work that, that is, is his mission in the world, we can trust him. We can trust his character and his nature. Romans chapter 4, 23 to 25, it says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up 
for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So did you know that just like Abraham trusted God and the impossible happened, his wife had children and he became the father of many nations. It's also true that if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be saved. Why? Because you're good enough? No. Because you worked hard enough? No. But because God in his character and nature does not break his promises and he works for the redemption and restoration of men and women, boys and girls, families, churches, cultures. See? And so you can trust him too. That's Paul's point. And I guess that's the crux of the matter, you know, is do you... Do you trust him with that? There are certain, certain implications, I think, of this Romans chapter 4 that we need to consider. I, I've been asked this question, I don't know how many times since I've been in ministry, and I'm sure I'll be asked this question many, many more times while I'm in ministry. The, the, the question is, how were people saved prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? What about all those people? Right? Romans chapter 4 teaches us in Paul's argumentation, they were justified by faith. He's already told us about Abraham and David, right? They were justified by faith. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old, that means the people all before Christ, received their commendation. So how were the people of old saved, justified, made righteous? How did they receive their commendation? By faith. They trusted in God to fulfill his promises. The promises lined out for them in the Torah. The promises lined out for them in the uh, writings. Um, And it wasn't, get this, it wasn't just Jews. You see in the book of Acts, they're having festival, Shavuot, this festival And it tells us that all these people, all these God-fearers from all over the world had come there. That's why the temple actually had a Gentile court, because people other than Jews were like, I want to trust this God, right? So they were saved by trust in his promises. Now, we are also saved the same way. You know, a lot of times we think very chronologically, right? So... Just the way things are set up, that you know, everything's BC or AD, kind of before Christ or after, after death, you know, and 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 it did split time, the birth and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension. It it did, it changed everything, but you have to realize that before that and after that and during that, God is sovereign over all of that. He's the same God. It's just I live in this little piece of time, this little piece of history on this side of the cross. So I'm saved looking back, thanking God for fulfilling his promise, bringing Jesus to fruition, crucifixion, resurrection, all of that. But, but if I'm David, way over here on this side of the cross, I'm trusting God to fulfill his prophecy that we see uh, lined out in scripture, that he's promised Abraham, that he promised Isaac, that we see in Malachi and Zechariah that all of those places, you know, he's going to fulfill them. And so we're, 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 they are justified by their faith. 
Second implication that we need to consider is that we can have faith that God will keep all of his promises. We can have faith that God will keep all of his promises. So it says in that Hebrews 11.1 1, that they ha- hope is, I mean, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Well, we are in a different place in history. I'm not hoping that Jesus will come. I know he came. Uh, I'm not hoping that he'll be raised. I know he, he was raised. We live in a different place in history. What I'm hoping is that he will come again. What I'm hoping is that he will restore all things, that there really will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem where there's no more tears, no more crying, no more pain anymore. What I'm hoping is that he's going to judge sin, that he will execute justice, and that because of this good news of the gospel, that those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins will, will, will be entering into an eternity that is right and with God and absence of sin and all sin, including Satan and all of his cronies, will be judged by the true judge, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping all that happens. That's what I'm, I'm hoping. There's more prophecy pointing to all of that than there ever was just pointing to Jesus being born in Bethlehem or dying outside the city of Jerusalem or being raised to life. More is to come. And so what I, my faith is about now is the coming of Jesus. Like I walk with him now, but I have faith, I have hope, assurance that he's gonna fulfill all his promises. Why would I believe God? Well, here's the simple is reason you, you, for me. This is it, bottom line. Why would I believe God to do all that other stuff? Um, well, Jesus, um, he said to his disciples, um, I'm gonna die, but don't worry, um, third day, I'll, I'll come back, and once you get your wits about you, we'll have breakfast. And so he did, and they gave their lives for that testimony. That's enough for me. A dead man crucified, a Roman sticks a spear in his side, and they put him in a tomb, and on the third day, he rises just like he said he would. Okay. God can do that. If he did that to fulfill his promises, why wouldn't he fulfill all these other promises? In his character, because of his character and nature, he will. Because of his redemption plan, he will. Because he's restoring all things, he will. He's doing all of that. And so we can trust him for those things. We can have faith that it will keep all of those promises. And here's the third thing I wish we would lean into as a church just a little bit more. And I don't mean our church. I just mean the church at large, but also our church, if I'm honest. God is the God of the impossible. I mean, think about Abram. Again, you just go back there. I'm 100 years old. My wife is barren. How could this be? You know, but then you got Peter walking on water. You got David slinging a stone and killing a giant. You got Jesus saying he would be resurrected and then rising again. You got Jesus calling Lazarus out of a tomb and healing a blind man. And he's the God of the impossible. You know what was impossible? You may not feel like it now, but it's kind of true. You know what was impossible? You. Me. It's impossible 
that I would not just give my life to a life of sin and self-pleasure? That's impossible. But because somewhere along the way, I met Jesus, I encountered Jesus, he convicted me of sin. He changed my mind about what is right and what is wrong, and he taught me a new way to live. Changed everything. This is impossible, what you're getting right now. It's impossible. It's the most beautiful, impossible thing for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to to hit their knees and say, I cannot rescue myself. So I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. That's impossible. Yet, most of you in the room would say, that happened to me some particular way time. He's the God of the impossible, and the church should shout this. R.H. Mounts, he's another theologian. He wrote this, where God is present, there is nothing that lies outside the realm of possibility. The church of Jesus Christ is in desperate need of those who will insist that God is able to bring to pass anything that is consistent with his nature and in concert with his redemptive purposes. Your God is too small is a sad epitaph inscribed on all too many ecclesiastical groups who, strange as it may seem, claim to worship the Almighty. You know what, church? We need to reconnect with the God of the impossible. Parted the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from a rock. He's always the God of the impossible. Does it seem impossible that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain anymore? Does it seem impossible that when you die, your very next breath as a follower of Christ will be in the presence of Christ? in a place that he's prepared for you? Does that seem impossible? It's possible because he promised it. And we can have faith. We can trust. We believe. And here's my question for you. Like, um, I I like the word trust a lot uh, because I hear people say over and over again, I have trust issues. From whatever, I've, I've got trust issues. Anybody ever do one of those like trust exercises with some, you know, like you're away on a team retreat or you're, you know, whatever. And it's like, Dwayne, crawl up on the bus and fall off backwards and we're going we're gonna to catch you. Uh, anybody ever done some version of that, right? Like, anybody ever been dropped? <laughs> At least one. Right. Uh, trusting God is not like that. If I crawl up on a bus, I have no idea. I have no idea if you're going to catch me or not. It might be a trick. You might be tricking me. I got him now. He's on the bus. When you trust God, you're trusting God who spoke the world into existence. And with the same breath, said, believe, believe in me. You're trusting the God who parted the Red Sea and in the same breath says, trust me. You're talking about the same 
Same God who delivered the people over and over and over from their sin and from their enemies. And they built stones and altars and they, they said, our God is good. And then they got scared again and he said, trust me, remember the things that I've done before. If we just took your life, if you're having trust issues with God, here's what I'd suggest. Like remember what he's already done in your life. He's very trustworthy. There's some people in the world, they are not trustworthy. You can look at what they've done in your life and you can deem them not trustworthy, 100%. God is not like that. He is trustworthy. He does what he says he will do and he's all about your best, your restoration, your redemption for his glory and, and your good. Same for your family, same for this church, same for the people of this community, the world that we live in, all the chaos and craziness. He's doing this thing called tikkun olam. It's Hebrew, the restoration of all things. It tells us in Acts, like, Peter's like, they, he's preached this amazing message. He's like, what should we do now? Like, keep doing this. Keep sharing the gospel until the time of the restoration of all things. We can trust him. We can trust him. Those disciples believed him so much. One, they loved him. Two, they saw him die. And then they saw him alive again. It changed them. It changed them. They give their whole lives for this gospel message that you are justified by faith in Christ. This isn't any work of your own. This is the free gift of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Just ask the Lord to speak to you in these remaining moments. Father, we are really, really grateful to hear the repeated principle that says we are justified by faith. And here's my prayer for all my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, anybody that listens to this teaching. Would you help us believe like by your spirit, grow our faith, build our trust, help us believe more. Father, for people that would say this today, I, I'm really struggling to believe that. Lord, I pray that you would woo them by your spirit, that they, they've, heard, they've heard the message, they've seen the clarity of it. Would you just convince them of that? in their spirit, by your spirit. Your scripture is very clear. If we confess our mouth with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Father, I pray that you would save people as they take very small steps just to believe. And for the rest of us, God, who have believed, Help us to trust you for the impossible. 
for the things that you're doing according to your redemptive purposes and plans that we sometimes think are impossible. Let us trust you more. Let this church be known for its faith in the world because just because we trust you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.